Now, we've only got two accounts of the birth and infancy of Jesus in the four Gospels, Matthew and Luke. And in Divine Providence, they focus on different stories to tell us that were important to them from their perspective for themselves and for their, for their readers. And so in Divine Providence, we've got, we've got a, a lot of information, although there's only two writers that tell us much about it, Matthew and Luke. And, and Luke does it in a unique way. Luke tells the Christmas story by alternating between John the Baptist and, and Jesus. But in the alternation between John the Baptist and Jesus, he makes clear that Jesus is always greater than John. For example, the very first story, and we'll talk about it more in just a moment, is the appearance of the angel Gabriel to Zechariah in the temple in Jerusalem, announcing that his wife, Elizabeth, would conceive a son, even though they're quite elderly. The, the birth is miraculous in, in the sense that they're past childbearing years. They're going to be stunned. They're going to be surprised. They're going to be, going to be shocked. It's going to come through the, the normal relationship of a husband and his wife. But John is going to be the prophet of the Most High God. And then the very next story goes to a little village in Galilee. The first story takes place in Judea. The first story takes place in the temple. The first story is an, an angel speaking to an elderly priest who had lived his entire life for God and finds himself in the holy place, burning incense, and, and there he encounters Gabriel. But then there's the teenage girl, somewhere between 12 and 18 probably, maybe 12 and, and, uh, and 14 or 15 even in this little, inconsequential, insignificant city of Nazareth. And there the angel tells her that she is going to conceive a child while yet a virgin. And she wonders, how, how is this possible? She doesn't deny that it, God can do it, but she doesn't know how it will come to pass. And he says, all things are possible with God. And here we've got this teenage girl stunned and surprised as part of the surprising nature of Christmas. And rather than recoiling at the announcement, she embraces it. Be it unto me thy, thy maidservant of the Lord. What a beautiful response. It's a little bit surprising because she knows probably in part what it will mean, but she doesn't maybe know fully. And sometimes it's what we don't know that scares us, scares us the most. It must have rushed through her mind, nobody's going to believe this. Nobody's going to understand this. Certainly the man that I'm betrothed to, Joseph, isn't going to believe this. And, and Joseph has to have a, an encounter himself with an angel to believe that Mary conceived Jesus by the power of God while yet a virgin. It's surprising. And then you've got Simeon and Anna. Luke loves people. And he introduces us to people that none of the other gospels ever mentioned. For example, Zechariah and Elizabeth. We wouldn't know anything about them if it wasn't for Luke. We wouldn't know their story if it wasn't for Luke. We wouldn't know their names if it wasn't for Luke. We knew about John the Baptist. But we never would have known that his parents were Zechariah and Elizabeth and that they had lived with the burden of childlessness 
their entire marriage until their, until their final years of life. He introduces us to people that we're not familiar with, like Simeon and Anna. Simeon and Anna are, are characters that, that step onto the stage of redemptive history for just a moment. But you get the idea God's been preparing them for that moment their entire lives. Luke is drawn to people because I think Jesus was drawn to people and Luke is writing about Jesus. For example, Luke's the only one that tells us in Luke 7, 36 to 50 that there was an immoral woman that anointed Jesus' feet at the home of a dinner party taking place in the house of a Pharisee. Luke's the only one that tells us about about that woman. Luke's the only one that tells us that there were two men leaving Jerusalem, one of them by the name of Cleopas, after, the, after Jesus had been crucified and raised from the dead, and they're headed back to Emmaus. They're on the road to Emmaus. Luke's the only one that tells us about them. Over and over again, Luke tells us about people that we wouldn't know anything about if we didn't read his gospel. And he tells us about people and characterizes people in a way that Matthew, Mark, and John do not because he's, he's captured a part of the heart of Jesus that, that's unique to his gospel. Jesus is drawn to people. That's why only Luke tells us the Son of Man came to seek and to save, save the lost. So you've got Jerusalem with Zechariah. You've got, you've got Mary in Nazareth. And, and then the, the next story is the, the birth, the circumcision, and the naming of John the Baptist. And his father speaks a word of prophecy, magnificent prophecy. He's filled with the spirit, his tongue is loosed, and he speaks prophetic words at the naming of his son, John. And then the next story is the story of Jesus. The birth of Jesus, the circumcision of Jesus, the naming of Jesus, the events the following uh, the days after Jesus' birth. He, he goes into much more detail about Jesus' birth, circumcision, naming, and the events following than he does John because Jesus is greater than John. John was the prophet of the Most High. Jesus is the son of the Most High. John was, uh, his conception was miraculous, but it was, it was through the normal interaction of a, of a husband and wife. Jesus is conceived of a virgin. When, when John the Baptist is born, his father is filled with the Spirit and prophesies. When Jesus is born, the angels of heaven break forth in song. Glory to God in the highest as they sing to the, as they sing to the shepherds. But Luke goes on and he tells us more of the events that took place in the early days of Jesus' life than he does about John the Baptist. And he tells us about a man by the name of Simeon. Simeon is, you get the idea, though it, he doesn't specifically state it, but you get the idea that he's an older gentleman. You know, it's interesting, again, that in the birth and infancy stories in Luke's gospel, you've got the elderly and you've got the young. You've got Zechariah and Elizabeth and Simeon and Anna who all appear to be quite elderly. And then you've got Mary and Joseph who are quite young, 12 to 16, 17 maybe for Mary, uh, 16 to 18, 19 for Joseph. And, and all of them are passionate for God. All of them love God. All of them are following hard after God. Well, we would think that's quite normal, but it was not normal in that day. 
That particular day in which Jesus was born was a dark day for Judaism. Much of Judaism was burdened under the legalism of the Pharisees. Religion had become a, a, nothing more than checking off a, a lot of lists. Crossing every T, dotting every I. The legalism of the Pharisees had, had drawn the relationship between God and his people. He, it had sucked it out of God's people. And they carried a heavy burden. Because many of them believe that the way that you made yourself right with God is by working for God. The, the Pharisee Paul bears that out perfectly. You were right with God if you kept the law of God. And, and then the temple, which is where the sacrifices were offered. And, and people would often make pilgrimages to the temple to offer a sacrifice to God, be it the Feast of Pentecost or Tabernacles or Passover. It was a once-in-a-lifetime trip for many people. But when they got there, the temple was controlled by, by thugs and hooligans, the Sadducees. Uh, the, the chief priest and the high priest and the Sanhedrin, which were dominated by the Sadducees, those were the people that murdered Jesus. Those were the people that killed Jesus. They were the ones that were governing the ex exorbitant prices that were charged for these people that would make the pilgrimage to have to buy, to buy a dove or a lamb. And you had to exchange money because you were going to make an offering at the, at, the, at the temple. You needed to pay the temple tax. You had to pay it in Tyrrhenian coinage. And they charged exorbitant fees. Thugs and hooligans. It was a dark period for the people of God. And yet there was a remnant of God's people that were passionate about him. There were a remnant of people waiting for the coming of the Messiah. They didn't know when he would come, but they knew from the very beginning when God said that he would crush the serpent's head and there were promises and there were prophecies and there were psalms and there were writings that, that kept them looking and waiting and longing for the coming one. And lo and behold, he came in the form of a baby. You know, a lot of times we'll put off the fact that, you know, I, I would love God more if it weren't for my wife. I'd love God more if it weren't for my husband. I'd love God more if it weren't for the world that we lived in. I'd love God more if it weren't for a preacher. I'd love God more if it weren't for the church. When you look at Zechariah and Elizabeth, you look at Mary and Joseph, you look at Simeon and Anna, you, saw, you see people who loved God despite the circumstances, the situation, the culture in which they lived. They were, they were the very best of what the remnant would be. And maybe no, there's no more surprising encounter in, um, in the birth and infancy narratives than the day that Simeon encountered God's son and recognized that baby as Israel's salvation. He had been promised at some point in his life he wouldn't die until he had seen God's Messiah. It doesn't say that he's old, but you get the idea that he's older because he's ready to die. But he's clinging tenaciously to the promise of God. He's clinging tenaciously to the word of God. He believes that God's word can be believed in and counted on. 
And he could have never imagined on that day, on that particular day, is the day his promise would be fulfilled. He must have been to the temple many, many times, dozens of times, hundreds of times. He probably lived in or around Jerusalem. He maybe went to the temple on a daily basis to pray. And he would go and he would leave and he would go and he would leave and he would go and he would leave, always ready, always prepared, always uh, waiting for that opportune moment to see the fulfillment of God's promise. And yet on this particular day, it came to pass. It's surprising, but what's even more surprising is that he paints for us a picture of the dark side of Christmas. The words that he speaks to Mary and Joseph are both a blessing and foreboding. Notice that in verse 25 and 26, we we see a godly man described, and there was in Jerusalem a man whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout. He's described in terms very much like Zechariah and Elizabeth back in Luke chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. Looking for the consolation of Israel, looking for the comfort of Israel. When, when a Jewish Christian would have heard this read, and while Luke is a Gentile, writing primarily for Gentiles, when, when it would have been read in any gathering or Bible study, there would have most likely have still been Jewish Christians present. They would have thought back when they heard those words, the consolation of Israel, they would have thought back to Isaiah chapter 40. Words of comfort spoken by God through Isaiah to his, to his people about the future. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord, Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice is calling out, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth the desert, in the desert a highway for our God. These are the same words spoken about John the Baptist in Luke chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. John the Baptist would fulfill the prophecy of these words. And notice Prepare a smooth road in the desert, a highway for our God. Jesus is God. The prophecy about God in Isaiah 40 finds its ultimate fulfillment in the Son of God as John the Baptist prepares the way. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. And let the rough ground become the plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken notice he says all flesh all people not just for the Jewish people he came to be the Jewish Messiah but also the savior of the world so so when he when he's is waiting for the consolation of Israel. Those are the things that are resonating in his mind. The Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord, 
the Lord's Christ. He's aged, elderly. With each passing day, he draws ever closer to the grave. And yet he believes, he's confident that God's word will come to pass. All flesh will fade away, but the word of the Lord abides forever. This godly man refused. He refused to capitulate to the legalism that was blinding the Pharisees and to the casual nature that caused the Sadducees to deal with holy things in unholy ways. He refused to allow that to sway him. He waited tenaciously. In, in verse 27 and 28, we hear a joyful song. Luke is punctuated with a, with a, a number of songs. We call them songs. Sometimes they're called uh, hymns. Uh, they're they're little, little nuggets of theology that are thrust into the Lucan narrative. For, for example, there's Mary's Magnificat, Simi, or Zechariah's Benedictus, the angel's Gloria, glory to God in the highest, and there's Simeon's Nuctimitis. They get their names from the Latin Vulgate translation of the opening line, the opening words. Nuctimitis means now dismiss. It's where a lot of the theology is wrapped up, a lot of the meaning of the passage. Notice he says in verse 27, and he came in the spirit into the temple and when the parents brought the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, either circumcision or the offering for the firstborn, then he took him in his arms and blessed God and said, so he, he sees, you see, we see with our heart, our eyes, are connected to our heart. Everybody else saw a beautiful picture of a, of a young couple carrying a baby. He saw the same thing, but he saw in that baby God's salvation. Our eyes determine what we see. People look at the same things. They interpret it differently based upon their hearts. One sees despair and one sees hope. One sees trouble and the other sees potential. Now, Lord, you are, dis you are releasing your bondservant. Now, Lord, you can release your servant. You can, you can allow me to die, to depart in peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. Notice Luke, a Gentile, writing primarily to Gentile Christians is accentuating the fact that Jesus is the long-awaited Jewish Messiah and the Savior of the world. A light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. Matthew chapter 4, picking up on this same idea, quoting from Isaiah. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan. Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light has dawned. Paul put it this way. 
For God, who said light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You talk about surprised, Mary and Joseph would have been stunned for two reasons. How did he know this about the baby? It took an angelic appearance to Mary, an angelic appearance to Joseph for them to to come to understand what they were about to experience and what they were going through. How, How could this man have known that? And then Secondly, how could it have happened at this particular moment in time? Divine providence beautifully being worked out, meticulously worked out as this man is at the temple at just the right time as Mary and Joseph come in to perform certain sacrifices and and, uh, acts in obedience to the Old Testament with their son. And in divine providence, there they meet. No happenstance, no chance, no good luck. But I want you to notice with me, thirdly, these amazed parents and, and, and what Simeon says to them. And his father and mother were amazed at these things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed, is destined by God for the fall and the rise of many in Israel. And for a sign to be opposed, some are going to look at him and be repulsed by him. Others are going to look at him and believe in him. Some will turn away and some will believe. He's going to be a sign to be opposed. They're going to be everywhere you see people will believe and reject, reject and believe. He's going to bring division between family and friends. Some will believe and some will hate. Some will worship and some will despise. And then he says these words, and a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. In the Gospel of John, John describes that Mary was at the scene where Jesus was crucified. She was at Golgotha. And in fact, they have a brief exchange in in John's gospel, John chapter 19. You have to wonder as they were watching, as she was watching them impale him on the cross and as he screamed in agony as those spikes went through the the nerves and the muscles and impaled him on on that cross, if the words didn't come back to her mind, words maybe that she had suppressed in her in her subconscious. And a sword will pierce even your own soul. There it was being fulfilled. There it was, her son, who had raised the dead, healed the sick, fed the hungry, calmed the storms, walked on water, and did all of the things that, that we believe that he did that are described for us in, in the Gospels. Now he's being impaled on a cross. She's hearing this predicted 
in his infancy. In, in the days immediately following his birth. See, the surprising part of Christmas is there's a dark side to Christmas, that Christmas leads to Golgotha. The dark side of Christmas is that, that Christmas leads to a cross, that Christmas leads to a death. And that's what we're reminded of in the Lord's Supper in part. We're reminded in part when you partake of it in, during the Christmas season that, that the joy of Christmas is a march toward Good Friday. But Good Friday is not the end of the story, is it? The Lord's Supper is also a reminder to us that Good, that Good Friday culminates on the Lord's Day, Resurrection Sunday, what we, what we call Easter. As we prepare to take the Lord's Supper in just a moment, if you're a guest with us today or maybe you've been visiting with us, we, we do this, we partake of the Lord's Supper every month together. And if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus, you love him, you're trying to serve him, maybe you're visiting with family members and friends, we would invite you to, to join with us. Maybe you're here and you're just looking for a, for a new church home for whatever reason, and uh, you're seeking to follow the Lord Jesus, we would encourage you to, to, to partake and to join us in the Lord's Supper today. But if you're not a believer, if you're not following Jesus, whether you're a member of the church or not a member of the church, we'd encourage you to, to not partake of the Lord's Supper. Uh, but, it, but as we as we get ready to take just a couple of thoughts, one is: Are you willing to allow God to keep you hidden for a solitary moment of usefulness? God does His best work in us behind the scenes. When the curtain is not open, but the curtain is drawn. And he's at work in us. And sometimes we, we are so anxious, rightfully anxious, willingly anxious. But God's got something that he's saving us for. And it may be a single solitary moment. We've got to be okay with that. We need to be good with that. And be faithful like Simeon and Anna and Zechariah and Elizabeth and Mary and Joseph. So that when he pulls the curtain open and we step out, even just for a moment in time. To accomplish his will for his glory by his grace and, and his power. Only to step back behind the curtain for them to be closed again. We, we need to be good with that. And we need to be living for him. Although we're not on the public stage. Uh, the second thing that I would say is this. Don't let life's circumstances be your excuse for not passionately following Jesus. In the ancient world, the Jewish people could have said it's the legalism of the Pharisees. It's the callousness of the Sadducees. It's the, it's the dictatorial, tyrannical regime of the Romans. But not Simeon and Anna, not Joseph and Mary, not Zechariah and Elizabeth. Don't allow your flesh, your fallen nature, that part of you that is not yet conformed into the image of Jesus, allow you or to convince you that your reason for casual Christianity is the fault of someone else, be it the church or a pastor or a family member or a former friend or a, or a, uh, or a co-worker. Don't, don't let 
yourself be convinced about that. Jesus wants you, and he wants me to be passionate in our devotion, heartfelt devotion to him. So I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer. I'm going to pray, and then there'll be just a moment of pause for us to, if you've got something that comes to your mind and you need to confess to the Lord, then just confess it. If the Lord doesn't bring a specific uh, sin to your mind or something that you need to confess, then he's capable of doing that. And, 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 and then just rejoice in this moment. And let's, let's prepare ourselves to, to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you this morning that there are so many surprises associated with Christmas. So many of them are good surprises. So many of them are, are wonderful and Father, there's no greater surprise than that you would send your son to take on human flesh, to become one of us, to die for us. And Father, as we celebrate the, the Lord's Supper now, we pray in Jesus' name that you would use it to strengthen us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.